Hello, welcome to another episode of Resist with Dharma. I'm your host, Sister Dharmageddon of the San Francisco Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence Incorporated. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence do not currently endorse or sponsor this podcast. It is a personal project of mine, but I'm sure they wouldn't mind. For more information about the sisters, visit www.thesisters.org. Stay tuned. In today's episode, we're going to talk about surveillance tech and how it exasperates the divide between the haves and the have-nots, between privilege and poverty. Alright, so thanks for staying with us. So today's episode was inspired by an article I read on The Week called Surveillance Tech is Making Gentrification Worse. And it was written by Navneet Alang. I'm sorry if I pronounced your name wrong, by the way. I looked it up on Forvo.com, which is a pronunciation website, and Navneet is not there. So I added it and I requested pronunciation. But until then, I just have to do what I can. So, yeah. So anyways, it was published on uh, July 1st of 2019. So Navneet lives in Toronto, Canada. In a pretty nice neighborhood that has seen its fair share of gentrification. If you don't know what gentrification is... It's the process of neighborhoods changing demographics as new people move in with different resources than the people who already live there. San Francisco, the city I live in, is seeing gentrification on an unprecedented scale and in fact has been for decades. San Francisco is known as a quirky artsy, you know, creative place like that with the people um, having their unique, you know, starving artist personas and whatnot. And it's very true. Artists usually don't have much money to roll around in. However, with the tech boom in the... uh, Silicon Valley, and most of the tech workers choosing to live in San Francisco instead of San Jose, which is actually a large city that's closer to them. It's brought scores and scores of money, 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 money to the city, money to the city. And what has this done? Well, you might think it's a good thing. Money's always a good thing, right? Having money allows you to do things. It allows you to go places. It allows you to live a comfortable life the way that you want to. The problem with money is that not everybody has it. And so what you have in places like Toronto and San Francisco and 
Oakland and just anywhere. I mean, gentrification is huge. What happens is you have the people who were already living in a neighborhood or a city or a state who are just barely getting by as it is. Maybe they rely on rent control. Maybe they work a minimum wage. Maybe they have medical bills and college tuitions and loans to pay off. Maybe they have families with children they have to buy things for. Or old people they have to take care of, like their parents. Maybe they themselves have health problems. Or are on limited incomes, like SSI or disability. Like I said, not everybody has money. And so what happens when the people with the money move in? Well, it gets the speculators going. And if you don't know what speculation is, uh, I'm not talking about just like imagining what could be. I'm speculating that, you know, this would be a really fun event. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a very specific process of buying up properties and then flipping them for higher profit. I buy a house for 100000 I turn around and sell it for a million. Okay? Why wouldn't I want to do that? That sounds like an awesome business practice, right? Well, as is so often the case with awesome business practices, it's not awesome for everyone. Personally, I'm going through gentrification myself. If you've listened to any of the previous episodes of this podcast, you would know that. And it's not fun. The apartment that I live in is rent controlled, which means that when the master tenant moved in over 23 years ago, the rent was at a specific rate. And the rent increase is protected. They, the owners of the building cannot increase the rent more than a specific amount per year because of rent control. Now, this protects the current tenants, myself, from being thrown out of their home because they can no longer afford to pay the rent. It's not a very good situation to be in. If you're living somewhere and you have built your life there and it's all you know and you're forced to move because your rent just went up $3,000 per month. No, so rent control exists to protect tenants. You know, real estate investors are business people and their products, their businesses are other people's homes, our communities, our lives. So there's a fundamental disconnect in this industry between the people whose property they want to sell and then the people who rent it and live in it and actually use it. And so often in this industry, as well as in all of capitalism, profit overshadows people.
Because, yay, money is God, right? And fuck everybody else. So in this article, surveillance tech is making gentrification worse. Navit talks about living in Toronto, Canada, and how, like most other cities, where gentrification is a problem, you can very starkly see the contrast between the haves and have-nots, between the people with privilege and the people in poverty. He gives examples about uh, his neighborhood, right, which he says is scattered with um, subsidized senior living facilities and homeless shelters literally next door to million-dollar, small, semi-detached, single-family homes. Okay? And this is the case also in San Francisco. It's very easy when you tour the city to literally see a street or a boulevard as the dividing line between neighborhoods with people who have lots of money to spare and neighborhoods who desperately need some more money and have none to spare. You can see it very clearly in this city, and apparently it's pretty clear in Toronto too. Now, Navit claims, he argues that the tech industry and all of these fabulous products that keep coming out Yes, they're useful and they're helpful in some cases, but what the inventors and the developers don't usually take into consideration is how exactly their tech could have a negative effect on the world. How it could be used nefariously for immoral purposes by unscrupulous people. He gives examples about Facebook groups and Nextdoor and how they are fostering racists, prejudice, and picking on people who are poor or black, brown, or in other ways, not white. And I've experienced this personally on Nextdoor. In fact, I've deleted my Nextdoor account because it was so disgusting to me. Nextdoor is a website, if you don't know, that uh, it tries to be the Facebook of neighborhoods, right? And so in order to get an account with Nextdoor after you sign up, they literally will snail mail you a postcard with a code on it to ensure that you live in the neighborhood. They only want people who live in the neighborhood to have an account and that's centered in that neighborhood. That way other people who live elsewhere really don't have any influence on what's happening in the neighborhood. It's supposed to be something that connects people so you get to know your neighbors, etc. It sounds good. Sounds good. That's why I signed up in the first place, right? It sounds good. It sounds cool. I would like to know my neighbors. It's too often that I walk down the street and I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody. Maybe like 
okay, I know my the people who live below me, and I well, I don't even know the people who live above me. I mean, this is the same building for crying out loud. In big cities, a lot of times you don't necessarily know your neighbors, and so groups, Facebook groups, and next door is supposed to you know help that. It's supposed to bridge the divide. It's supposed to help you get to know people. It's supposed to make you more friendly. Um, and make living somewhere more pleasant. But what too often ends up happening is that these uh, platforms are used to facilitate racism and prejudice, stereotyping, etc. The way that this happened in my personal experience is there's a neighborhood called DeBose Triangle. It's right near the Castro. In fact, many people consider it the Castro. Okay, I love the Castro. It's the gayborhood of the world. I mean, this is where gay people flock to and have been for decades. And so I love the Castro and I love San Francisco, but the people in the DeBose Triangle neighborhood are some of the most racist, privileged, uncompassionate and gossipy people that I have ever experienced in my entire life. The DeBose Triangle next door group is disgusting. All they do is look out their window at people walking down the street and report people who are not white as suspicious. In fact, some of these residents go out of their way to follow them, secretly recording them as they walk down the fucking street. Oh my god, a black person's walking down my street. He must be up to something. I better go record him so I get it on tape if he does anything. I wonder what these motherfuckers think. When he doesn't do something, when they've just followed him, secretly recording him for a block or more, and all he does is walk through. I wonder, do they think, oh, well, I was wrong. That was not a suspicious person. That was just a person of a different skin color. I should really reevaluate the way that I look at people and make assumptions. Do they, do they analyze their actions in that way? Well, no, they don't. There might be a couple people who do. And for those people, good on you. Keep analyzing your shit. And when you find something that doesn't seem like it fits with your morality or with, any, or with common decency, then yes, acknowledge it and work to change it and become a better person and grow and makes communities, you know, stronger. But most of these people, uh-uh, self-reflection, no thanks. They would rather reflect on you. And so I deleted my account because fuck next door and fuck those racist people. And I mean, yes, I had some issues with that. Uh, part of me would rather be on the platform and make 
shares and comments and call people out on that shit. You know, because so they don't just keep getting away with it. But there's so many. There's so many in it so often that it's overwhelming. And as a sister of perpetual indulgence, there's a lot of things that can make life overwhelming. We throw ourselves into the middle of some very, very controversial issues and try to move progress forward and make life safe and equitable and secure for everybody, not just the people with the privilege. But that's a a big job. It's a lot of work. And on so many angles, you get nothing but hate and resistance and just nastiness. And so... I couldn't do the next door. I have too much of that shit coming at me already. I don't need it every time I log in. So I canceled my account. So Navit, Navit along. He says tech also links the privileged with the police. Okay. And he gives examples about how some jurisdictions, police departments actually offer discounts or 100% free surveillance tech to residents of their districts who are willing and promise to share that surveillance with the police. You know, why wouldn't people want to do that? That sounds great. I mean, like, I, I've wanted a ring doorbell for a long time. You know, the, you know, those doorbells that have the cameras in them? Hell Yeah. I mean, I live on a street that's really kind of like, there's a lot of stuff that goes down. Uh, people break in all the time. Not necessarily to this building, but yes, more often than not, I mean, shit, we've been broken into before. Bikes have been stolen from inside the locked security gate. Uh, the key that the mail, you know, the mail person, when they want to deliver the mail, there's usually a box. If there's a gate they can't get in, there's usually a box somewhere that they have a master key to that they open it up and it has the key that actually opens the gate, right? Okay, that's been stolen too. That's been stolen too. So, I mean, they can't even, they have to throw our mail over our security gate every day. And then one of us that lives here has to sort it and distribute it to the three apartments. There's a lot of theft. There's a lot of shadiness that goes on. I admit that. And I admit that I have and actually still do want one of those ring cameras. But I want it more just to be able to see who's ringing my doorbell. So I know whether or not <laughs> to answer it or not. But then I do for um for like catching thieves and stuff. But, you know, that is a, a reason why I want it to. So I, I can't lie about that. But imagine why I don't have one yet. Well, they cost money. Over $100 if you want a good quality one that you, that actually has storage space or cloud, cloud connectivity or whatever, right? It costs money. 
I myself am on a limited disabled income. I don't have money to buy food every month after rent, let alone an expensive doorbell camera. And so for years I've wanted one, really. For years I have wanted one. I've window shopped on eBay, on Wish, on Amazon. I've put it in wish lists. I've put the vibes out there trying to get the universe to send me one somehow. But it's too expensive. I can't. And you know what? Likely, even if I did get one, somebody would steal it. I mean, how ironic is that? But yeah, no, I wouldn't put it past them. And that would mean that I would have to buy another one. So that's a lot of money, potentially, that I don't have to spend on that shit. So why wouldn't I take the police up on their offer to buy me one? If all I had to do was make sure that I sent them that information if somebody actually did try to break in, right? Well, it sounds like a win-win for everybody involved except the burglar. But it's not. It's not. Because what this does is it typically provides people who do have the means with free shit. Whereas people without the means, they don't get that same offer. They have to buy that on their own if they want it. And most of them can't afford it. So not only, not only is tech exasperating the divide between rich and poor in, in that regard, but Alphabet, the parent company of Google, I love Google by the way, but maybe they are a little too big for, you know, their our well-being. Google in Canada, one of their subsidiary companies is actually planning on building an entire smart city. They are trying to integrate their technology into every aspect of the city building planning process. Now, this sounds like it could be interesting, right? Okay, who wouldn't want a futuristic, highly connected city where all the gizmos and gadgets are built into the very infrastructure that makes it up. I mean, that sounds great. Until you realize the sensors everywhere that Google will be installing, they will know everything that happens in that quote-unquote smart city. Can you imagine that power that that would give them? Sensors on the roads, sensors on the lights, sensors everywhere. They will know everything. And you will have no privacy. Now, whether or not they use that information against you or just to target ads, it could be benign, but it could be very nefarious as well. Sounds more like 1984 to me than ever, right? And I worry where the world is heading with all this technology. 
It also makes me wonder if tech will be our downfall. We could talk about that more in a later episode, but basically it's something called the Fermi Paradox. And if you haven't heard about it, um, uh, Fermi, who is his last name, he was a scientist, studies, you know, planets and solar systems and things, astronomy. And when we look up into the sky with our telescopes, we see nothing but galaxies, stars, and potential places for life to thrive. The deeper we look into space, the more we see. For instance, the Hubble Deep Space Telescope was looking at a specific spot in the sky very small, tiny spot that was empty. At least it appeared so. It was completely empty. It was dark. There were no galaxies in that point in the sky. There were no stars that we could see in that point of the sky. And so what they did with the Hubble telescope is they made it look at that very point and keep its eye open, and they keep kept its eye open for a, an extended period of time, which allowed light coming from that direction to collect in the telescope's receiver. And after a, a long time, I think it was a few days, of just staring at that one spot, they collected enough light to see some extremely distant galaxies. So that spot that when we look at it from Earth appears to be completely empty and void of creation, they found thousands and thousands of galaxies in that spot. So there's so many stars and galaxies out there in the world, or in the universe, all having potentially countless places where life could, you know, live and, and fucking grow. Yet, we appear to be the only life in the universe. The universe should be teeming with life. There should be life everywhere. We should not be able to look anywhere and not see life. There's so much opportunity for it to arise. Yet, we don't. Everywhere we look appears dead. Appears like there's no life there. Appears like we are the only life in the universe. Now, how could that be? Why is that? This does not seem intuitive. It does not seem correct and it does not seem possible really and so this is the fermi paradox with so many chances for life to thrive in the universe why are we the only ones and i think an answer to that might be technology you know with the rate of exponential technological um, expansion and capability 
You know how every 18 months, computer processing power doubles. Well, exponents, exponents are, are not linear. They don't go one, two, three, four. They go one, two, four, eight. If you keep going, 16, 32, 64. Do you see how fast technology is advancing? After you get past just a few steps on that exponential increase, it explodes. And you, the person going on the linear steps, one, two, three, four, will never, ever, 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 ever be able to catch up, let alone even see their competition in front of them. So maybe it just, maybe it evolves too quickly. I mean, look how fast we made nuclear weapons. We had just discovered nuclear science. And one of the first things we made with it, <laughs> we're capable of destroying the entire world and all the life on it. Maybe that's what happens. Maybe the reason why we don't see people out there, we don't see other, other, other life, we don't even see other non-intelligent life. Maybe they've all destroyed themselves with technology. Maybe technology will destroy us too. Actually, I'm not very hopeful it won't. But in the meantime, we just got to keep trying to survive and fight the power. Fight the power. Maybe we, maybe Earth, maybe we can be the first galactic civilization in the universe. Now, wouldn't that be great? If you pray, please say a prayer tonight and ask that we remain in control of our technology and that it never takes us down a road that we can't recover from. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned to future episodes for more. I hope you're having a blessed day, blessed week. I hope you're having a blessed year and life. I love you. I love all of you. You all are beautiful, perfect, and so important to life on this planet. Please remain authentic to yourself and who you want to be. Namaste. Okay, so you know, as a little bit of a postscript to that episode, um, let me just remind you that if you're listening on the Anchor app, there is the option that, to send me a message. You can record a voice message and send it to me. And unless you don't want me to I can include it in future episodes and your voice could be heard along with mine so if you have something to say send me a message and let's chat also you know like I I, I don't mind constructive criticism I know I'm not the most consistent with uploading uh, content and I apologize for that and there's many reasons why that I've discovered and one of them is you know i'm just 
kind of critical of myself, self-critical, and maybe put myself down more than I should. Or, uh, you know, think my ability is less than it really is, potentially. Other times I'm a perfectionist, and, you know, if something happens, if I don't, if I slip up, if I say something, I mispronounce the word wrong or something, sometimes it's reason for me to start re-recording. Um, and after you've done that 15, 16, 17 times in an hour, there comes a point when you just say, fuck it, let's make a sandwich instead. Also, um, I have split, um, ideas about how a podcast really should be. So why don't you tell me if you have a comment, how should a podcast be run? There's two formats, I think. There's, uh, well, there, there's different ways, basically. One of the formats is it could be specific topic based kind of like a mini series right when when there's a mini series on evolution or something and there's five weeknights of episodes right it's like a documentary movie but broken down into little parts i've seen some podcasts that are formatted like that they discuss a specific topic uh and they cover it in detail but after they're done the podcast is done because that topic is over and they move on to their next project right that's one way to do a podcast like a little docu-series or there's others that are like talk shows ongoing talk shows that last for years and they talk about anything in general or they talk about a specific topic or a broad topic they you know they have a format um I don't know. I don't know. Would it be better to have a general talk about everything podcast? Or would it be better to have several fully contained, self-sufficient miniseries podcasts? Let me know. I look forward to hearing back from you.